Okay, uh, help me out here at the beginning. Uh, finish this sentence for me, okay? Summer is a time for blank. Fun. Over here, I heard vacation. Excellent. Camping. Family. Swimming. Lots of pool time. What else? Summer is a time for heat. Okay. Anybody else? Who's, who's already been on your vacations? Well, lucky. I know some folks over here are headed uh, on a cruise to, soon. Some right back there just got back from a cruise. Uh, I'm jealous of all of you. Summer is a, is a, time, it's a different uh, pace, isn't it? It's a time for more family. Perhaps uh, you are going to go on your vacation or you already have. It's a time for camping, It's a time for a getaway, and for many of us, summer will kind of be a highlight uh, of the calendar year. Some some of us uh, down here are going to get married this summer, congratulations, and others others as well. Summer uh, is a wonderful time, but it it is often a time for vacation and for trips. Uh, It's also a time for camps. Many of our uh, students and kids will participate in camps this summer. Our elementary kids leave in about three weeks, about 40 of them, to go to camp for a week. And I know uh, some of the parents in here are counting down the days uh, for that camp trip to arrive. Just last night, we sent uh, three busloads full of high school kids, our Young Life uh, group here in Frisco. They left from our parking lot last night, three busfuls of high school kids going to North Carolina to the Smoky Mountains, Appalachian Mountains, whatever, beautiful place in North Carolina for camp. Summer is a time to get away. Summer is a time for vacation and for that camp experience. Many of our kids will come back from those times at camp uh, rejuvenated and excited and on fire for Jesus. It will be a mountaintop experience. It will be an emotional high. And many of you will have those highs as well as you vacation or go to beautiful places this summer. Summer includes those mountaintop experiences. But all of us in this room know that summer doesn't last all year, does it? Summer is not the season we enjoy year-round, and as it is in our calendar, so it is in our spiritual lives. There can be those camp experiences. There can be those restful, relaxing getaways and the joy of going on an adventure together, but eventually you have to come home, Right? And you have to get back to the real world, and not every week and not every month can be a mountaintop experience. Those kids will come back in buses jazzed about Jesus. They will be excited to pursue him, and there will be a struggle in the months to come to maintain that energy, to maintain that zeal. But summer doesn't last forever. And our spiritual highs don't last forever. And I think this morning as we get to our passage in Philippians, as we continue to work through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, we see some words that we need to hear when winter time comes, uh, when we're not on a mountaintop experience, when we kind of feel like we're back going through the motions and the zeal has somewhat worn off. 
So open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. We've been in chapter 3 for a while, and we're actually going to finish through chapter 3 today and, and even on into the first verse of chapter 4. But we see here at the end of chapter 3, I think, some ingredients for enduring in tough times, enduring in season of winter, enduring uh, against false teaching or suffering for the faith, or just times when it's hard to keep trucking along. So uh, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verses 12, verse 12, and we'll, uh, as I said, we'll conclude in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. We, uh, this section, I think, is actually bookend by two similar statements. We've looked at the previous 11 verses in previous weeks, but uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1, kind of serve as bookends uh, to this section, okay? If you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, side by side with chapter 4, verse 1 here, you see chapter 3, verse 1 says this, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, If you compare that with chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1 says, My brothers whom I long, uh, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. So you'd see in chapter 3, verse 1, and in chapter 4, verse 1, they are bookend by these by these commands. Rejoice in the Lord, my brothers, and stand firm in the Lord, my brothers. And so the verse, uh, chapter 4, they've begun, in my translation, uh, they've begun in chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, really kind of fits better with most of chapter 3. But we're going to concentrate this morning uh, on verses 12 through uh, 4, 1 as we kind of continue this section uh, within those bookends. And I'm going to offer what I see as four ingredients, if you will, or four components to uh, standing firm in tough seasons or pressing on in seasons of winter, if you will. Those four things, real quickly, we'll look at them individually, but those four things being confidence, humility, community, and hope. Confidence, humility, community, and hope. Um, Let's read, uh, first of all, verses 12 through 16 together, okay? Verses 12 through 16, follow along with me as I read the first uh, verses here, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay, confidence, humility, community, and hope. First of all, confidence. If you're going to endure in times of winter, if you're going to endure in the dry seasons, you have to have this confidence in God. And we've actually seen that confidence most clearly in weeks past, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. We have heard over and over about how we have a confidence in God because he has given us his righteousness. If you believe in Jesus, you now have the righteousness of Jesus. 
Not because you're a good person, not because you're a righteous person, but because by faith you have put your faith in Jesus and God has credited you the righteousness of Jesus. And therefore, you have a confidence, and that confidence is not in yourself, but it's in God. If you look back at verses 8 through 11, he, he, is, he has told us, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, Paul has, has given us his, his resume, his spiritual resume of all the good things that he's attempted, of all the, uh, the spiritual heritage that he has, but he concludes that all those things that he thought were advantage were actually loss compared to knowing Christ by faith. He calls them rubbish. Or as I said last week in other translations, rubbish or dung or excrement, or in the words of my father, crapola, right? It's rubbish. All those good works, all those spiritual attainments really amount to rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And his confidence comes because of verse 9, that he is found in him. Or excuse me, let me back up to verse 8. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that depends upon faith. Our confidence is not in our works, it's not in our church attendance, it's not in the fact that we've made ourselves members of a local church. Our confidence comes because of the righteousness that God gives us. And you see, as in uh, verses 12 through 16, also his confidence in God. Look uh, at verse 12, the second part of verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. His confidence is not that he's done something good, but his confidence is that Christ Jesus has made me his own. You can endure in winter, you can endure in seasons of suffering because you can be reminded that Christ has made you his own. He says the same similar thing in verse 16 there. You see, only let us hold true to what we have attained. In times of trouble, you don't have to try to to depend upon yourself, you have to look back and say, what has God given me? The righteousness righteousness that I have is a righteousness that he has given me. Let us now work out, according to chapter two, what God has worked in us. Let's hold true to what God has attained for us. We have a confidence in God. He's made us his. But what's interesting is not only uh, from Paul is there a confidence in God because he has this secure, uh, never fading, never uh, falling righteousness, but right next to his confidence in God in these verses, he also talks about a humility that he has. Confidence right next to humility. You see his humility uh, clearly in the first part of verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He's saying this just on the heels of that he's been given the righteousness of God. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, I'm righteous, but guess what? I'm not perfect. How, does, how do those things go together? He says, the righteousness that God has given me is a gift. But it's not that I live up to that righteousness in my practice daily. I'm not perfect. I have the righteousness of God, but in humility, he says, but I haven't obtained it already. I'm not already perfect in my walk. He also shows us his humility at the beginning of uh, verse 13. 
He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. This righteousness is not my own doing. It's a gift of God. I'm not yet perfect. I'm not yet where I want to be. So for us, as the Apostle Paul, if we know Jesus, we can have this incredible confidence in God because our standing does not depend upon ourselves. And at the same time, right with that confidence, we can have this humility that says, you know what, even though God has made me his child, I'm not yet fully grown up. I'm not yet perfect. I'm not yet mature. I still have growth to do. And this is, this is that tension in the Bible. This is that paradox of how God has made us righteous, righteous by his son, and yet we still have to grow. We still have to exercise effort in becoming more mature and becoming like Christ. We have an effort to play in that. But the attainment is, is not our reward. The attainment is not our doing. It's God's doing. And yet there is effort that we have to put forth. Are you following me? Does that make sense? This incredible confidence in God, but also this true humility in God that, man, I have not made it yet. Every morning you wake up, you need to know those two things. If you know Jesus, you need to know that you're righteous before God And you also need to know, I have a long way to go. Philippians 1.6, we looked at this a long time ago. Philippians 1.6 was this this great promise that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You will be mature. You will be made perfect one day. But the rest of that verse says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not gonna be done you're not going to you will never arrive spiritually until a day of Christ Jesus but take heart he has taken hold of you he has given you righteousness confidence and humility side by side you know the apostle paul is a pretty big deal in the new testament but here in chapter 3 he says i'm really not a big deal all the religious accomplishments, all the pedigree and the resume that I have really just accounts to rubbish, dung. But in, a, in, in the New Testament, this guy, is, he's an apostle. He, he's written over half of the New Testament. He's a big deal. But look at how he describes himself. I haven't yet arrived. I'm not yet where I want to be. That's what he says here in Philippians. And if you trace this throughout the New Testament because Paul has written multiple letters, you see as Paul's relationship with Christ goes forward, his humility actually grows. His confidence grows, but as he grows spiritually, his humility grows as well. So if you look, we have this on the screen, I think, but in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which was written about 57 AD, look at how Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians 57 AD. He says, I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. This is the huge missionary of the church. And he's saying, man, I'm unworthy to be an apostle. I'm the least of all the apostles. Right here in Philippians, it says, man, I have not arrived yet. He has an incredible humility, but look how his humility even grows with the years. Three years later, as he writes to the Ephesians, he says this, he says, I am the least of all God's people. You see his growing humility here in in 1 Corinthians, he's comparing himself to the apostles. Hey, of all the apostles, I'm the least. 
Of all the Fortune 500 CEOs, if you will, I'm at the bottom. I'm number 500. But in Ephesians, he's not even comparing himself to the apostles anymore. He's just comparing himself to God's family. The guy's self-esteem is getting worse and worse. Kind of, not, not actually, but his confidence, his humility is growing. He says, I'm, I'm less than the least of all God's people. And look what happens three years later, as we estimate when 1 Timothy was written. First and 2 Timothy, probably the last letters that Paul would write. Look how he describes himself in AD 63. I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, he's no longer comparing himself to the apostles. He's not even comparing himself to God's family. He's saying, of all the sinners out there, I'm the chief sinner. And guess what? Here's, here's this paradox. Here's this beautiful, difficult truth that the more you grow in maturity with Christ, the more you see that you have far to go. Let me say that again. The, the further you grow in maturity with Christ, the more you see your sin the more you see, man, I am not where I should be. I have a lot of growth to happen, but that doesn't throw you down in despair because at the same time, you've been given the righteousness of Jesus. You see that? Incredible confidence in God, but incredible humility before God. You know, when we, when we come to faith in Jesus, the thing, the, the thing that brings salvation is an admittance of sin. And the rest of your walking with God is not just an admittance of sin, but it's, it's, it's deeper layers of the onion that you say, oh man, there's sin here. Oh man, my heart is deceitful. Oh man, my motive here was not pure. So as you grow in Christ, you actually feel like you're growing less in some sense, Right? The further you follow, the farther you go, the more you see your need, the more you see that your sin is deeper even than you really thought it was. So Paul, to, to endure in the winter, to endure in tough times, he, say, he says, press on. He says, stand firm. How do we press on? We have an incredible confidence in God because of the gift of God's righteousness. We also endure with incredible humility because we see our sin. Thirdly, or before I jump to community here, let me say this. He says, in the midst of this humility and in the midst of this confidence, he says two times there in those verses, I press on. Verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own. In verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even though we're never going to arrive until the return of Jesus, we still want to press on. We still want to know Christ more and more. Last week, we looked at verse, verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And Paul is in this process, as all of us are supposed to be in this process, of knowing Christ more and more. So there is a call here to press on, even in winter. To press on when the emotions wane to press on when it's hard to get up and put one foot in front of the other when, the, when the, the feelings have faded, to press on. All of us, as we've talked about, those getting married this summer, all of us who have been married know that the, the feelings at the beginning of marriage, they, they don't go away, but they differ as we grow in intimacy. And as we get through those hard times, those winter times in our marriage, we don't give up, but we have to press in, 
even though the zeal or the feelings may not be as strong as they were after that honeymoon. Same thing with Jesus. The camp experience, the high that our kids come back with after they've been on that mountaintop spiritual experience, it will wane. But we still, in times of the winter, press on, move forward. And then he also says an important thing in pressing on is forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. I think it's uh, verse 14, or excuse me, verse 13. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind. What is it that you need to forget about this morning? You know, often we tend to remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. Over and over, the Bible is telling us, particularly in the Old Testament, God tells his people over and over, remember my love, remember my faithfulness, remember my work, remember how I delivered you because you are so inclined to forget. But what we typically do is remember the stuff that we need to forget. And it may be the guilt of that former stuff. It may be the guilt or the shame of that divorce, or it may be the, the agony of that addiction, the way that you messed up that relationship, but you're carrying that. You're remembering what you need to forget, and you're forgetting what you need to remember. It's not just the guilt or shameful things that we need to forget. Sometimes it's the good things. You know, Paul's resume in chapter 3, I mean, he had a lot of achievements. He had all the spiritual attainments there, but he says, I counted all rubbish. And so he says, I forget that stuff. It really didn't count for anything. Some of us need to forget our good works. Because yeah, I don't know if it's true for you, but sometimes I know it's true for me. We can live on last year's camp experience. You know what I mean? Hey, been there, did that, got the t-shirt, and you kind of live on that momentum. You live on that spiritual high from that time before. Hey, a couple years ago, I was in this great Bible study. It really changed my life. Yeah, well, where, where have you gone since then? You know, I was, in this, I was in this great small group for a while, and man, my relationship with God was, was really good, and you just kind of live on past experiences of church or past experiences of Bible studies or past experiences of small groups without moving forward. You can't live on yesterday's meal. You got to live on today's diet, on today's food, on the word of God today to continue to press forward, to move deeper, to run stronger. So we strain, we press on, we forget what needs to be forgotten and we remember what needs to be remembered. And one of the ways that we do that is through community. Look at verses uh, 17 through 19 here as he describes community. He says, brothers, join, uh, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What is he saying here? He's saying, imitate me, which is fascinating in itself because he's just said, hey, I'm not perfect, right? I haven't arrived. He hasn't arrived, and yet he still has the confidence to, to tell these believers, follow me. 
Imitate my example. And the example of Timothy here says, follow the examples that you have in us. He's, I haven't arrived, but I'm following Christ close enough that if you follow me, you will come closer to Christ. Can you say that? Can you say that to your kids? Can you say that to people that you're trying to lead to the Lord Jesus? Hey, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived, but if you'll follow me, I think you'll be closer to Jesus than you were before. That's, a, that's quite a statement for the Apostle Paul to make. Follow me. Join in imitating me as I walk, not as the Lord's enemy, but as his apostle, as his follower. Imitate me, imitate us, not the examples of the enemies. He's going to talk uh, in the next verses here about the enemies. Who are these enemies? I've often told you, and now tell you with tears, they walk as enemies. Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And look how he describes them. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in shameful things, things that they should be ashamed about, they actually glory in, they actually take pride in what they should be ashamed of. And their minds, their minds are set on earthly things. He says, you're going to follow someone, either good models or poor models, follow me, not the enemies. How do you know if someone's an enemy of Jesus? How do you know if someone is on the wrong team? One way, he says here, is that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. If you're listening to people on the radio or particularly TV preachers and they don't talk about the cross of Christ, pay attention. Because if the cross is not center in their teaching, if the cross is not center in their theology, then they don't get Jesus, okay? Okay? These false teachers, their, their God was their belly. They were all about their own appetite. They were all about their own self-fulfillment. And they certainly didn't want to hear anything about the cross of Christ, about suffering or about following Jesus in his suffering. But the cross is central to Christianity. If you look at the Gospels, they spend so much time talking about the cross and the death of Christ because it's on the cross that we're redeemed. It's on the cross that our sins are forgiven. And if you're listening to someone on TV, perhaps his name is Joel Osteen or someone like that, that never talks about the cross, sorry for that, that never talks about the cross of Christ, watch out. Because the cross is central. And if you don't talk about the cross, if you don't know the Jesus of the cross, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Imitate me. Follow me. Avoid the enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in what they should be ashamed of. And their minds are on earthly things. The here and now. Their bellies. Accumulation. Their appetites. Don't follow them, imitate me. And we need to be in fellowship, we need to be in community with others who are on this path, the path of the cross, the path of the gospel. The the world constantly, constantly in Collin County is having us think about our appetites, is trying to get us to look at the things we need to buy, is trying to look at, at the stuff that will make us beautiful and successful and and uh, have reputation. And folks, that, that is the enemy. I'm not saying it's wrong to have nice stuff, but I say if our minds are constantly set on this life, on earthly stuff, 
our eyes are focused on the wrong place. Flip over to Colossians chapter three. I don't have this on the screen, but flip with me just quickly here. He talks uh, the same similar thing in Colossians chapter three. He tells them where to set their minds, to set their eyes. Colossians 3.1, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And look at verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Where's your mindset? Where are your eyes focused? Is it on the here and now, or is it on the things of heaven? He says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And look at what he says in verse 20 and 21, back in Philippians chapter three, verse 20 and 21. He says, our citizenship is not in America. Our citizenship is not in Texas. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What is he talking about in verse 20 and 21? He's talking about hope. He's talking about hope that our eyes are not set for our hope in this earth, but our eyes are set on the heavenly on Jesus who will return and transform our bodies and bring about a new kingdom. That's where our loyalty is. That's where our citizenship is. It's in heaven. And from there, the Lord Jesus will one day return and transform these broken, sick, disease-filled bodies and this broken earth and remake it into a kingdom of God where he reigns as Savior and Lord. Keep your eyes on heaven because from there is our coming Savior. Not from D.C., not from America, but our ultimate hope from heaven, our Savior. As sure as Jesus has come, he is coming again. And he's going to transform you and me, and he's going to transform this world. And if you have that kind of hope that Jesus is coming again and he will put it all right, then you can endure a season of winter. You can endure dryness. You can endure the tough times because you know you have the hope of the return of Jesus. And guess what? We win the game. We win. I had a coach, wrestling coach in high school. He'd always at the end of practice when it was conditioning time. He says, I never want you guys to lose in the third period because you're out of shape. You gotta be in better shape than your opponent to win. You're never gonna lose in the third period because we're gonna press on. You never wanna lose the, in the ninth inning. You never wanna lose in the fourth quarter. You wanna press through. You wanna run through the tape. And you can run through the tape, you can finish because you know that the same Jesus that came is coming again. There's hope. And if you have that kind of hope, you can endure the winter. You can endure the hard times. I know many of you have probably heard of C.S. Lewis 
famous Chronicles of Narnia stories. Maybe you read them yourself or you read them to your kids and there's children's versions of those. But at the end of the story of the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, it talks about how Narnia has been transformed through Aslan and through the, the children. And it says that Narnia is transformed to become a place, get this, to become a place that is always summer and never winter. Always summer and never winter. Man, that's not where we live. Winters come. Trials come. But if you have the hope of a coming Jesus, you can press on. You can endure in the dryness, in the winter. Pray with me. Father God, we uh, just confess, many of us this morning, that... uh, we're in a tough season that uh, it doesn't feel like vacation. It doesn't feel like a mountaintop experience. And yet, Father, we thank you that our hope is not built upon our circumstances, that our hope is not even built upon our faithfulness, but our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you make that real in our hearts? Would you help us to strain forward? Would you help us to press on when we just feel tired, when we feel like giving in? Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your power that lives in us through the Holy Spirit. We look forward to your soon return. It's in your name we pray. Amen.